You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. All right, well, we're back in Acts after a brief break. Uh, remember, uh, if, if you were here, um, two weeks ago, we were in Acts chapter 13, uh, and Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary trip out of Antioch in Syria, and they actually came to another city in Galatia, uh, which is now sort of central Turkey, um, uh, also called Antioch, Pisidian Antioch. Very effective ministry there, but they get chased out uh, by opponents of the gospel. And so they head to another city in Galatia called Iconium. Uh, also do some very effective ministry in Iconium, but also then get chased out. They actually learn of a plot afoot to kill them. Uh, and so they escape Iconium and they head to a town called Lystra. Now, Lystra is different because up to now, uh, Paul and Barnabas have largely been ministering in cities, fairly significant cities, uh, that have a Jewish synagogue. And that's where they would always start. They'd go to the, uh, to the synagogue first. Um, Lystra is a, is a more rural town, smaller. Uh, it apparently did not have its own synagogue. Uh, we, at least there's no mention of it here. Uh, and as, uh, as they start ministry in Lystra, Paul is just publicly addressing uh, the population. He's not, he's not preaching in the synagogue. So this is where we pick it up in Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas uh, in uh, the town of Lystra. Uh, Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 23. I would urge you, if you have a Bible, especially if you have a study Bible, they usually will have maps in the front or the back. Uh, and usually one of those maps has, a, has uh, Paul's missionary journeys uh, indicated on it. It's, it's helpful uh, to, to look at those maps. You can kind of get place these uh, places uh, on, on the map. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, the text is printed for you in the uh, worship folder. And I'm going to ask, if you're able, to please stand for the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 14, starting at verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well... Uh, the actual literal rendition there is uh, faith to uh, be saved, uh, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Laconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments, rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? 
we are also men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, He allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet He did not leave Himself without witness. For He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up, entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Blessed are you, Adonai, King of the universe. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Please give us uh, grace today to receive your truth in faith and Love and please give us strength to follow on the path that you set before us. And we pray these things through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, it might be hard for some of you, especially you younger people, to uh, relate, but back in the day, uh, the Wizard of Oz uh, would be shown on network television only one time a year. Remember that? That was always a special occasion Uh, at my home. We would gather as a family and uh, watch The Wizard of Oz. Loved doing that, Uh, though I always had kind of an approach avoidance thing with that movie. There were things about it that scared me as a young boy. I was scared of the flying monkeys. Uh, And uh, and I was scared of the uh, wizard. The wizard, of not the real wizard, the human wizard, that man behind the curtain. Uh, but, the, but the image of the wizard that that man was projecting, the, the wizard that, uh, that we all saw, right? That huge, frowning, scowling face, right? Remember that? And the, the booming voice, the, the fire and the smoke, the, the stern commands, the sort of mean tone in which he was talking. Uh, it all contrasted so sharply with what Dorothy and we were expecting. Right? They had just been skipping down the yellow brick road, thinking about how, you know, singing about how wonderful and kind the, uh, the uh, Wizard of Oz is. Uh, if ever a whiz, a whiz there was. You know. um, but instead, he proves to be anything but that, right? He's this, he's this scary, mean guy. Uh, and he's not going to help uh, Dorothy uh, and her friends until they prove themselves worthy of his help, right? He's not going to bless them 
until they earn it. Uh, and they had to earn it by uh, getting the broomstick of the Wicked Witch of the West. Right? Now, why am I bringing all this up? Well, I'm bringing it up because uh, I have no doubt that there are people in this room, uh, and certainly there are people you know, uh, if this doesn't describe you, uh, the, who think of God like the Wizard of Oz. That he's like the Wizard of Oz, right? That he's this unsmiling, unkind, unmerciful, stern, demanding God. Someone you have to prove yourself to. Someone you have to, uh, who, who doesn't love you unless you earn it. Someone who doesn't bless you unless you earn it. And you're never sure if you're going to be able to do it. A lot of people think of God that way. And if that's you, if, if, if you tend to think of God in that kind of way, you really need to check your preconceived notions about who God is against what the Bible says about who God is. And, and what you discover when you do that is that, the, the, is that God is not like the Wizard of Oz at all. Right? You learn a lot of amazing things uh, about God, good things. So in this episode, uh, in Paul's and Barnabas' ministry, this first missions trip they took together, um, particularly as they minister here in Lystra and Derby, we get some insight into some things that are true about God. Okay, And, and that's what I want to cover with you today. Uh, number one, uh, we learn about the character of God, the character of God himself. Number two, we learn about the character of God's substitutes. You know, sometimes we, we, we put something else or someone else in God's place, and those things have a certain character as well. So the character of God's substitutes. Third, we're going to learn about the longing of human hearts, uh, a longing, a deep longing that at its deepest level is actually for God. Uh, And then finally, we're going to learn um, a tough truth, a a hard truth, about the certainty of a rough road to God's kingdom. It's going to be a rough ride. So buckle up. So first, then, that's where we're to go. That's those four things. First, the character of God. What do we learn about Him? Well, we learn first from what Paul teaches, right? He, he rushes out to the crowd with Barnabas trying to uh, stop this worship uh, of them as gods. And, and Paul speaks. And, and you learn, verse 15, that God is, is alive and He's powerful. Right? And, he's, and, and of course that power is implicit in the fact that, that Paul identifies Him. He really starts the Gospel where, where the Bible starts, right? With creation. That God is the creator. That everything that exists, God uh, created and sustains. So he is, he's living and he's powerful. You learn, verse 16, that he's also, unlike the Wizard of Oz, not quick to judge. That he, that he gives people, he gives nations, space, time uh, to turn to him. And that's what he has been doing. 
You also learn even more than that at verse 17, that that God has been and continues to be continuously generous and good and gracious. In fact, we're just surrounded by His generous goodness all the time, so much so that we almost miss it. It's it's sort of like you know fish swimming in the ocean. Uh, They they probably aren't thinking so much about the ocean. The ocean is just the environment in which they live. Uh, We as human beings live in an environment that is full of constantly full of the gracious, generous goodness of God. And you know, part of the, the seriousness of sin is that we forget that. So we don't acknowledge it. Um, you know, so without asking for anything, without asking us to earn it, to prove it, what does God do? He creates conditions on earth that allow you and your family and me and my family to eat and to be productive and to be glad and have joy. To love and appreciate beauty. You know, do you know the one that is behind the joy you experience is God Himself. You know, one of the best ways to get that handle on the character of God is to look at Jesus. Right? That's Jesus repeatedly was telling His disciples that. You want to know what God is like? You want to know who God is? Then look at Me. Right? If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. In the New Testament book of Hebrews, right up at the, at the very beginning of the book, Hebrews 1, verse 3, it says that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. He's a human being who has had exactly imprinted on him the divine nature, right? God, he is both human and divine. And, and so if you look at him, you see an exact imprint of God's nature. Now, I know you don't see Jesus here in Acts 14, but you do see one of his servants, Paul. And Paul is acting like Jesus. He's mirroring Jesus here. What's he doing? Well, verse 9, he's teaching, right? He's, it opens up, he's, he's speaking, uh, just like Jesus and you know, a lot of Jesus, a lot, a lot of people just stop right there with Jesus and recognize that they'll, they'll, they'll acknowledge that Jesus uh, was a great moral teacher, and he was. And, 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 and Jesus taught, and Paul is in his name teaching, just like Jesus. Uh, but Jesus was, of course, much more than a teacher. And, 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 and Paul does something here that's very Jesus-like, right? Because in the midst of his teaching, uh, he takes, he, he begins to take an intense interest in, in, a, in a man in, in the crowd. Uh, a man who has been marginalized his whole life because of his disability. And Paul looks at him, right? And, and out of compassion, he and in the name of Jesus, he meets that man's needs. The lame man walks up, or stands up, and 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 walks around. Um, 
the language that Paul uses there, uh, it probably sounds familiar to you. It's almost exactly the same words that Peter used earlier in Acts when they encountered the lame man outside of the temple. And both Peter and Paul are in fact mirroring language that Jesus used uh, in that episode when, when the four friends let their, let their friend down through the roof of the house in Capernaum. He was paralyzed. And, and Jesus said almost the same thing. And you know, when Jesus did these miracles of, of healing, uh, it, it mentioned, the gospel writers would mention time and time again, you know, Jesus looked at him with compassion. He looked at the crowd with pity or with sympathy, right? That was, um, that was what motivated the, the, the restoration, the healing. Um, so we're reminded here as we watch Paul, not just teaching, but in the name of Jesus, healing someone, that God is compassionate. That God cares about you. You. Cares about your needs, your problems. He's not just words. He's action. These are good things to know uh, about God. And, it, and not only does it, should it encourage you, you know, to know better the character of God, but it also gives you and me a roadmap for how, how we testify, how we represent Jesus in our world, right? Uh, Paul is a, is, is a good model there. We have to speak the truth, uh, but we also have to act the truth. Right? It's not just speaking, but it's, it's, it's living the truth, showing the people to whom we speak, the love, the compassion, the sympathy of Jesus. Now, I'm not asking you to do a miracle. If you can, more power to you. But it doesn't take a miracle. You don't need to do a miracle to show someone the love and the compassion and the sympathy of Jesus. What it takes is sacrifice, time, trouble, effort. But we can do it. So that's the character of God. And it's a, it, he's, a, he's got a, an amazing, wonderful character. Let's look, by contrast, at the character of the God substitutes. You know, when Paul and Barnabas rush into the crowd to stop them from worshipping them as uh, Hermes and Zeus, Barnabas got top billing, Zeus, uh, Paul, Paul got, uh, got the lesser billing, but, but that's because Hermes was the big talker. And Paul was apparently the one talking. Um, they say at verse 15, we bring you, they're right, he's trying to stop them. Stop this, right? We're men just like you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Now you, right away, you hear the implicit Critique of the Roman gods, right? Paul is, is saying, without saying it, you know, the, the gods you are worshipping are dead. They're not alive. You should turn to a living God. And, and what and he describes them here, you should turn from these vain things, speaking of Zeus and Hermes. Uh, the word translated vain there, that's an okay translation, but it's, 
we don't use that word much. Um, it, it, it really means powerless, useless, worthless, empty. Right? Paul and Barnabas are making a very strong and courageous statement, right, in, in, the, in, in context. Right? They, they are, uh, that, that is a very strong critique of the Roman pantheon. Not only are they dead, they're empty, worthless, powerless. But that, in fact, is not just true of Zeus and Hermes. Uh, it's, tr- it's a fundamental truth about any god substitute. We, you know, we often call them idols. Here, I'll, I'll refer to those things as idols. Uh, and idols, don't think of idols like... like, like uh, the people in Lystra thought of them. I mean, right when they would worship Zeus and Hermes, it was they would they would uh, you know bow down to a statue of, of Zeus and Hermes. But you know we have idols nonetheless, and they are just as dead, just as powerless, uh, and and they don't deliver. They don't deliver on what they promise. In fact, they put you. It, but it's, it's worse than that, because if you worship a God substitute, it's not just like, well, it's a no harm, no foul, because the God substitute isn't even real. It actually, if that God substitute, even though it's empty and worthless and doesn't deliver, puts you in bondage and fear. And we see it right here uh, in Acts 14. Uh, let me show you what I mean. You know, it's interesting, and I suspect this is what one of the things James was referring to that he likes about this episode. It is odd, it's the first time we've seen something like this happen in Acts, where, where you, know, they, you know, a miracle is performed, and, and they jump to the conclusion that these guys must be gods. Not just any gods, but identifiable gods as Zeus and Hermes. And they, they were... Uh, you know, bound and determined to 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 worship them. Uh, what, why? What hap- What's going on there? Why? Why that leap? Well, it makes sense if you know the backstory. And there's a very interesting backstory. The uh, there was an ancient myth. It was ancient at the time uh, of Acts 14, uh, but it had been revived within the last 50, about 50 years. The great Roman poet Ovid. In his epic work, his magnum opus, the uh, epic poem called Metamorphoses, uh, which is a collection of ancient myths that set in an epic poem form, there is a story and a myth uh, uh, about events that happened in this region where Lystra is located. And right in this region of the Roman Empire where, where Lystra was, uh, so goes the ancient myth. Zeus and Hermes once showed up as human beings, disguised as human beings. And they went around to, in this village and went house to house knocking on the door to see who would show them hospitality. You know, gods in disguise. Um, and they would go from house to house and in every, every house turned them away. Uh, until they came to a house of one elderly couple, uh, husband and wife, uh, Philemon and Bossus. And uh, Philemon and Bossus uh, invited them in and showed them hospitality, even though they were 
very elderly and very poor. And uh, to make a long myth short, uh, as uh, uh, the, the bottom line is that they, they were rewarded, their little hovel becomes a temple, and, uh, and the village and all of its people are destroyed in an act of judgment by Zeus uh, and Hermes. Now you know the backstory. So when Paul and Barnabas show up right here where this myth took place, right, uh, and this lame man is miraculously healed, uh, it's, you know, you can now see that it was not, not, uh, it was kind of natural for, for the, these uh, people in Lystra to think, oh, Zeus and Hermes have showed up again. But is that good news? No, exactly right. It is not good news. What's driving this worship, right, is not uh, wonder and happiness and awe and joy at the return of the gods. They're afraid. This is fear. Oh man, is this going to happen again? Right? Um, so the pre- you, you got to love, right, the priest of Zeus here, right? He comes running in, pulling oxen. Got garlands around the oxen, and he's running in. He's, he's, man, we gotta kill these oxen, man. We gotta sacrifice. Uh, we don't want Zeus and Hermes to be destroying us again. It's not an offer, it's not worship, or an offering made out of gratitude, it's not made out of joy, it's driven by fear. If we don't do this, we may not live. That's how idols work. That's what idols do to you. God substitutes do, the, do, do this to you. The Roman pantheon, it's long gone. But, but our idols, the idols of our day, will do the same thing. Um, and this is relevant to all of us. I mean, look, because even if you're a Christian, uh, it's very easy to slip back into, uh, into relying on a God substitute. Um, if you're not a Christian here, and if, in fact, and you would regard yourself as, as not a religious person, I would put it to you that you are religious, that you do worship something. We all worship something. Uh, it's just a question of what, what it is. So, so for example, a big one is career, right? If your self-worth and identity is all wrapped up in your career, and for millions of people it is, uh, you're not free. You're not, a, you, you're not a free person. You may think you're free. You're not free, right? Think about it. You're in bondage to that idol, to your career. You will do, you have to do what your career demands that you do, and you will do it essentially out of fear. Right? I, I don't want to lose this job. I'm afraid, I'm afraid I'm going to lose this job. I'm afraid to be seen as a failure. Right. Right. That's, there it is. It's bondage and fear. Uh, if you get your self-worth and identity, say, not from a career, but say from, from the approval of other people, friends, family, mentors, what, whatever, um, you know, you're also not free. If, if you're living for the approval of other people, that's what you need to be happy, satisfied, uh, fulfilled. 
you're not free. You're in bondage to the people whose approval you need, right? You, you have to do what you, you need to do, what they require you to do in order to get and keep their approval. But the whole time you're living on pins and needles because you never know when they're going to change their mind. And you young people particularly know this. It's, 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 adults deal with it too all the time, but, but, but uh, young people, we deal with it in sort of an unfiltered way, in a kind of a cruel way. Right? You might be in the in-group uh, in your school uh, this week, and then you show up on Monday and you're out, and you don't know why. Right? That's, that's, it's, it's on full display here, right, in, in Acts 14. One moment they're ready to bow down to and worship Paul, and in literally the next breath, verse 19, they're stoning him. You know how fickle a crowd can be? How, how, how on a dime people can t- change their minds, they change their opinions uh, of you. They stoned him unconscious. They thought they'd stoned him to death. Uh, but he was uh, just unconscious. Uh, They dragged him out of the city thinking he was dead to to be exposed to the wild animals, a a shameful death uh, for a Jew. Um, Man, people are fickle. And if you live for the crowd, you're going to be living in bondage and fear. You know, a big one, and I'll stop stop here, but you, you, you can find all sorts of idols. You know a big one right now? is Mother Earth. Or, say, I'll say, say Mother Nature or Planet Earth. Right? Um, and if, if you're worshipping the planet, and a lot of people are, you're going to live in constant fear. Right? Of what? Climate change. Right? Global warming. Overpopulation. Hydrocarbon emissions. You name it. Now, of course, I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't be good stewards of creation, right? We need to be. Those things matter. We, we, we have been given the planet to steward it well, but not to worship it. And, 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 to, and you know, and there's a thing. I just heard about it on NPR. Climate anxiety. Have you heard about that? That a lot of young people are suffering from what people are calling climate anxiety. They're watching the planet, you know, uh, self-destruct in their view. And they're anxious about it. And if you don't think this is religious, did you hear President Biden a few days ago? In an interview, President Biden said that the next generation, unless they get a handle on climate change, the next generation is damned. Man, I don't even preach that strongly. What? He just damned a whole generation. Because they haven't sufficiently worshipped planet Earth. Bondage and fear. That's what God's substitutes give you every time. Every time. Well, how do you get back to the real God? That gets us to the third point, the, the, the longing of the human heart. Um, James K.A. Smith, uh, 
I think he's generally known as Jamie, Jamie Smith, uh, a philosopher and a theologian at Calvin College. Uh, He put his finger on something that I think most of you experience. Most of you know what he's talking about. And he, he writes this, Don't you feel it? Don't you have those moments of either foreboding or on the cusp elation where you can't shake the sense that there must be something more. Do you know what he's talking about? For, for Jamie Smith, it's often associated with music. He talks about, writes about times when he listens to music and, that, and music, uh, sometimes the, you know, classical music, sometimes the words of modern music put him in touch with something that's just out of reach Gives him that sense that there's something there. C.S. Lewis was all over this, right? He 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 experienced these uh, th- these longings. He called them, um, and uh, in his in Mere Christianity, he writes this: Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, God's substitute, but they never quite keep their promise. I've told you before about my experience of these longings. I had them, I didn't have a vocabulary for them, didn't really know what I was experiencing uh, until I started reading C.S. Lewis. That was the first time I read somebody else that was talking about something that I knew I knew, knew I had experienced. Um, I even gave it a name. Uh, I, I called it the frustration of beauty. Uh, because it was it would always it would come on me. This sense, uh, this longing would come on me usually when I was gazing at natural beauty. When I was standing uh, in Yosemite Valley. When I was standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon, when I was uh, walking a trail in Zion National Park, when I was watching a sunset at the beach on the coast. A sense would come over me that as I'm looking at this beauty, that there there was something else there, something just beyond it, something just out of reach that I almost wanted to jump into. You ever had that feeling? That's... It's scary when you're standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon. <laughs> or in a chairlift. I have literally had to, you know, hold on to a chairlift because I've had, I had this impulse to kind of leap into the beauty. Weird. I know. Check me in. <laughs> what I'm saying is don't ignore those things. Don't ignore those, that sense, those longings. Don't make light of them. Take them where they will lead you. And I believe they'll lead you, ultimately, down deep, at, at the deepest level of our hearts. Paul says in Romans 1 that, 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 that we all have a deeply buried, deeply suppressed knowledge of God. And that sense is putting you in touch with that. Old Testament says that God has put eternity into our hearts. That's what that sense is, I think. It's, it's putting us in touch with that. Um, 
And I, what I believe those longings are are what uh, t- uh, Pastor Tim Keller called a memory trace. Right, a memory trace of something that we humans once had a long time ago, and that is intimate connection and friendship with God. We lost it. We lost it through the fall, right? Uh, and and that longing, that deep, deep longing, is for for to get that connection and that friendship back. And it's so, and, and, and sin makes us stick substitutes in there. But I think that those longings are driving you to the Lord. Now, how do you do that? How do you get that meaningful connection back with God now? You, I mean, you, you can't make the leap, you know, you can't leap the chasm that exists right now between you and God. But God can leap it, right? You, you can't go up, but God, can come down. The idol worshippers in Lystra were almost right in verse 11 when, when, when they said, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. No, Paul and Barnabas had not come down, but the living God had come down. Friends, the living God has come down in the flesh and the blood of Jesus. As as C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien celebrated, right, men who studied myths for a living, that the myth finally became fact. What career can't give you, what approval can't, human approval can't give you, what planet Earth can't give you, Jesus can give you. And only Jesus. Right? To really know that you are fully known and fully loved. To, to know that you're forgiven. To have your shame covered. To know that justice will ultimately prevail and that all things wrong will be set right. To have peace in the midst of all the craziness. To have all your fear vanquished. Fear of failure, fear of poverty, fear of not fitting in, fear of being alone, fear of death itself. When you put your life in the hands of the God who came down in Jesus Christ, when you put your hands in your life in the hands of Jesus, by faith, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection will make all of these realities true in your life. Everything that the idols don't deliver, Jesus will. Okay, finally. Uh, I'm not saying that if you put your faith in Jesus, then everything's going to be great. Neither did Paul. Neither did Jesus. Right? Uh, The fourth point is the certainty of a rough road to God's kingdom. You know, after Lystra, Paul go, and Barnabas go to Darby. They have this effective ministry in Darby. If you look at the map, they should have just kept going in the same direction. They were eventually headed back to Syrian Antioch, right? To the church that sent them. They could have just gone straight on the Roman road and gotten there quickly. But instead they looped back, went the other way, and went back to the very same cities where their lives had been threatened. And again, it shows both the faith and the courage 
of Paul and Barnabas. They went back to Lystra, back to Iconium, back to Pisidian, Antioch. And what did they do? Along the way, it says they encouraged these new believers in these new churches. They appointed elders for them. They urged them to remain in the faith, to continue in their faith in Jesus. And one part of that encouragement is sort of this sober reality check. Continue in the faith, your faith in Jesus because you need to know, verse 22, that it is through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Is, man, is there a verse that's less understood by American Christians than this one? There's so many preachers out there suggesting that if you put your faith in Jesus, the tribulations go away. There's so many Christians that struggle as, as, as they, 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 they're, 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 they're believing in the Lord Jesus, they're trusting Him, they're obeying Him and following Him and worshiping Him, and, and their life is brutal. Full of suffering and trials and tribulations and, and, and the, you know, sort of the American supposition is that, well, then there must be something wrong. God must be telling me that I'm on the wrong road, that I've got to escape this situation and find another situation that's problem free, trouble free. No. Suffering, trial, tribulation is the Christian way. We must enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations. Must. Right? Tribulations, trials, suffering are a must for Christians as they move through life to its ultimate end, which is the kingdom, uh, the eternal kingdom of God. Why? Why? You're saying, why God? Why do we have to do that? Well, let me get in closing here, and I'll be quick. Three reasons why. There are probably more, but let me give you three, three reasons why. First, if you're faithfully representing Jesus in your life, if you're obeying Jesus, testifying about Him, obeying Him, following Him, uh, whether you're in school or work, in your neighborhood, uh, you are representing, right? You're bearing the name of Jesus. You're representing the ultimate authority. The God, the Creator God, to whom everyone on earth owes allegiance. The one, the one to whom every knee must bow. That's not a message, that's not a reality that, that, that unregenerated human souls want to hear. Right? Our human nature, everybody's human nature, until the Holy Spirit reworks it, rebirths it, we resist. Sin causes us to deny authority over us, to push back against that authority. Right? We will not on our own surrender our autonomy. We will not on our own surrender our control, our sovereignty over our lives. It's all supposed. It's an illusion. But we'll hold on to it dearly. Right? And, and because of that, you show up in the name of Jesus, and you're, and you're going about your life faithfully obeying Jesus, and it's kill the messenger time. Right. You're gonna, as, 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 as one who carries the name of Jesus, you're gonna necessarily get blowback from, from a planet that is in rebellion against Him. Right? 
And that's part of the truth. That's part of why uh, we must enter the kingdom of God through through tribulation. Second, uh, suffering is God's chisel. There's just there's just no other way to say it. And and it, and I wish there were another chisel, but it's true, right? It's the Holy Spirit is sculpting every follower of Jesus here into the likeness of Jesus. He's making you like Jesus. And He's transforming you into a person that has the humility of Jesus and the mercy of Jesus and the faith of Jesus and the compassion of Jesus. How are you going to get those things apart from living through hard times? Isn't it the hard times that throw you back on Jesus? Like the good times never do? Isn't it the hard times, as you look back, it's the suffering and the tribulation that you've come through that has made you a better person? More like Jesus? It's true. It's certainly true in my life. Um, C.S. Lewis said it well, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, conscience. But he shouts in our pain. He shouts in our pain. I don't minimize that pain at all. It's brutal. We don't ask for it. Never wish it on anyone else. But God will put us through it because it's his way of transforming us into his image. And third and finally, and I'll close with this. We go through tribulation We suffer and experience trouble and trial and tribulation because suffering and sacrifice are inseparable from love. You can't love apart from sacrifice and suffering. They go hand in hand. Every married person in here knows that when you gained a spouse... Right, The moment you got married, you started sacrificing in your life like you never had before. Hey now, that husband's going to hear about it. But it's true, right? Because all of us now, for the first time in, a, you know, in that deep fundamental relationship of marriage, you are now living for another. And you, and you will sacrifice your interests for the interests of the other. And that involves sacrifice. That involves suffering. That involves self-giving. That's hard. Every parent in here knows, you know, the sleepless nights with crying babies, the vigils at the ER, the countless hours at the dining room table trying to figure out Algebra 1. The sleepless nights when the teenagers are 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 out late. Love involves sacrifice. Love is suffering. So as you go out in the name of Jesus, friends, and love love the Lord and love your neighbors, you're going to experience tribulations that necessarily come with sacrifices and sufferings of love. It's not convenient. It's not easy. It's hard. It's sacrificial to love your neighbors. But what will sustain you, what will drive you to do that, to drive you to love with joy, is that as you go out, you put your, you fix your eyes on Jesus. 
who even when you were yet an enemy, loved you. And he died for you. Suffered and died for you. That's the gospel. That's what saves us. But it is also what powers us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this amazing story of Paul and Barnabas in, in Lystra and Darby and for what we learn about you. Thank you for being the good, gracious God that you are who has bridged the gap uh, between us by coming down in the person of your son, Jesus. Lord, forgive us where we have gone off the rails and, and, and gotten our hearts wrapped around God's substitutes. I pray for those who, who, who are not, who have not acknowledged you, have not come under your lordship. Lord, I pray that they will and be released from the bondage and fear that, uh, that their idols are now subjecting them to. We thank you, Lord, for all these things and for your, for most of all for the gift of your son, whose name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton. Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.